0: Welcome to Ogilove Nanagus, conversations about Irish
1: mythology, with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody, at www.storyarchaeology.com. Series
0: 2, The Battle of Moytura, Episode 9, The Children of Tyran 1,
1: The King of Bling. But well, no story today, so let's go straight into this, this story of the children of Turin. Yeah. Now I mean this we're treating it as one of the Foschger for the Battle of Moitura. Yeah. It's a later text, isn't it? A much later text.
0: Oh, it is, yeah. I mean, the the only textual version that we could dig up on this one is well, it's approximately 14th century. I don't think there are supposed
1: to be earlier ones. I don't think alley. so, not
0: linguistically. I mean, it's, it, there's references to it in, I think, the books of Lecan and the uh, book of Leinster and, Lismore. Uh, and the book of Lismore, yeah. Now, all of which are later manuscripts, but, but as we know, you can get early texts in late manuscripts. But this seems to be... It's clearly within the early modern Irish language. What, what,
1: tell me, what, what what is this text, and why is it so important, do you think?
0: Well, it's it appears in the tale lists as the added uh, uh, or added the violent death of the clineter and the the family or children of term. Um, and it, it appears in sort of the later tale lists as well it's called One of the Three Sorrows yeah. of Irish Storytelling
1: I know that really sort of is interesting because yeah. you've got these the, the three great sorrows the other two are the well-known children of Lear. Yeah. you've got the rather depressing story of Deirdre yes it? and the sons of Ishluk. Yeah. oh dear <laughs> I oh for goodness don't get me started yeah. you had a Maeve rant I could have a Deirdre rant <laughs> yeah. I really don't like that story yeah. it's just depressing <laughs> and then you've got this one but if it's one of the three stories it's mm. lesser known but it is important yeah yeah and what's interesting although it's obviously a very important uh, text mm. it's quite difficult to get hold of wasn't yeah, it yeah yeah
0: absolutely i mean when we first went looking for it the the only real reference to a translation we could find was from our dear old friend O'Curry, mm-hmm. um who as we know is not necessarily the most reliable of sources
1: no though i did read that one and it's Really felt like just uh, a translation. I can't find where I put it. Though. Yeah, That's yeah. The trouble. <laughs> well, the the just version on one of my many computers. Yeah. Oh, good yeah. old technology.
0: The the version that we're working from though is uh, one that was published by Richard O'Duffy in it's around 1901, 1906. That kind of time. Yeah, 1901. Yeah, and uh, it was published by the Society for the Preservation of Irish Language. An interesting organisation, I believe. Uh, uh, well, yeah. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid, dear listeners, this is another text in which my family had a, a remote connection. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean a remote connection? Well, the... You can access it from anywhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you yeah, know, remote as in wireless. Um it's yeah, Count George Noble Plumkett was uh, one of the he was a co-founders. Papal a papal count. Exactly, yeah, not not a hereditary count. Um So he doesn't count? No. <laughs> you <laughs> and certainly his wife shouldn't have been calling herself Countess but she really liked that but Count Plunkett was one of the kind of co-founders and an honorary chairman I think of the Society for Preservation of Irish Language um, as part of that I think he also endowed a, a medal in Trinity College for spoken Irish yeah he was your so, great my great great grandfather yeah yeah. and you can read all about him in All in the Blood a memoir of Geraldine Plunkett Dillon edited by my mother we Brullochon
1: uh-huh, okay. <laughs> put it
0: on the word and a bit on more, more the word, on the then. 16 lives biography of Joseph Mary Plunkett also by my mother enough of the comedy
1: (laughs) comedy prodigal Plug. (laughs) <laughs> Let's get back to the text. Yes, but I know that you're interested in in this text because it is in modern, early modern Irish, isn't it? It is
0: most most definitely. Um, I mean, it's even it's something that someone who has good modern Irish could probably struggle their way through it and and understand a lot of it if they can read it. I know this was the the biggest barrier for me. I and mean, we've we've talked before about you know how to access electronic texts and having to use Braille and so on. With this one, um, as was. The style at the time and up to the sort of around the middle of the 20th century the Irish text was written in this font known as mm. Cló Gáilach the, the Irish mm-hmm. printing font which is kind of designed pretty pretty. It is. It's designed on the, the manuscript mm-hmm. you know um, font of, of, and style of writing but uh, my computer doesn't understand it at all so even though I mean it's tricky enough to try and get a computer to sort of scan and recognize a text that's in an older form of Irish but when it's in a completely incomprehensible font as well there's just
1: the ocr you know, some of the ocr results are oh quite God. interesting aren't they well yeah that's a polite term. For <laughs> but let's get on yeah. with so the. so it means
0: that if you do get hold of this and we'll put up a link to the text which is in a pdf mm. format on archive i think there are other forms available but mm. that was
1: the most convenient yeah that just be be forewarned that you might come across this funny font Oh, it's all right. Once you get to the translation, it's okay. Yeah, Yeah, Don't worry. It's only if you want to read the original Irish. But one of the things you said to me that you thought it was really interesting, because it does show the development of a story into medieval times. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the language is
0: firmly within that. You know, it's it's early modern Irish, so we're talking post-12th century. This Mm -hmm. one is probably 13th or 14th century. And uh, the language is consistently um, in that time frame
1: including the poetry including the poetry that's clear when I read it yeah even in translation that mm. shouts at you that the whole thing is of a piece exactly exactly and that's unlike
0: our ninth, ninth century text of Kath Magadzirud where there are passages which are definitely in Middle Irish um, the poetry particularly the Rusk and the Ruskada Irish, is in a, quite an archaic form of, of Old Irish you know so there is this kind of there's more a, mm. a mix of, of and language and we are
1: quite convinced I know you you mm. are and I can see exactly what you mean mm. that if you like the tale has grown around this core of poetry. Exactly, exactly. And and poetry does preserve
0: itself in its form because of all the sort of the formal elements of yeah. it where you've got, you know, alliteration and, and Certain kinds of rhyme and stress, and so on, mm. and that tells us again that the the poetry within our Cynic text is in the
1: same language. So we've definitely got a literary piece, yeah. which may have had some basis in folklore, but seems to have been created as a, a, a piece of literature at this yeah at this at time. This time. The, there's
0: definitely you know you'll see as we go through it that the various influences that the composers and tellers of the tale at that time were bringing
1: together as as a unit, as a whole. So, are you ready for a tale that outdoes Hamlet and Macbeth combined? (laughs) It is a true and heroic tragedy. Oh, yes. Now, it begins, though, with a tale that we have told before. Yes. And this is one of the reasons I haven't started with the story this time, because I think this is enough of a story, to be honest. But it starts with, um, remember, Noida, Mm-hmm. and his silver hand. Yes. And it starts with the king sitting there with a the silver hand and mm. he's definitely in order king. Yes. They... Even though he was deposed, mm-hmm. this story begins with him as king exactly. with a silver hand. Yes. Which is another big difference. It
0: is. There's quite a lot. You can't really synchronise the two uh, versions of this. Te- like you can't mm. synchronise the ninth century with So the idea that century. the blemish
1: prevents mm. him being king seems to have disappeared. Yeah. And
0: instead you have this idea of kind of a
1: a weakened and a kind of a, a, oh, a malingering king you've got something again of the wasteland here, yeah. he is the, the wasted king, yeah. he is the maimed king yeah. and he's sitting there in this sort of image of darkness, mm. a silver hand shining mm. out of the darkness and, yeah. and uh, as the two physicians enter the court, mm. now before they enter this, before I paint this wonderful and uh, <laughs> gothic image yeah. let's come to how they, they arrive in much more cheerful form, oh yes uh, Miak, and now this odd character
0: who yes the the second physician now meek we know before um, and we know that it was he who restored the real hand to know in our ninth century mm-hmm, text mm-hmm. but the other physician is called Orviek, and that's just meek with an or stuck on the front and you're thinking that this is really Arabic I think that that or it's uh, in the early modern Irish that's an o-i-r um, I think that's a ref- reflex back to Aravid, So the
1: brother and sister have exactly. now turned into two, two brothers. Two brothers, yeah. And they turn up and on the way into the court, mm. they meet the doorkeeper, yes. as you do. Yes. But now we've got a sort of Macbeth-style doorkeeper, yes. you know, who's knocking without, you know. Yes. What door without the door? Yeah. You know, all that sort of stuff. And you've got an almost comic, comic, comic character as oh, a doorkeeper. Yeah. Well
0: again, he's got one eye, yeah. you know, which isn't a great qualification for being a watchman, you
1: know. Yeah, well as they come up, they sort of go, Oh, would you like us to repair you know, to yeah. replace your eye? And mm. he goes, Well, if you can do that, yeah, fine. Yeah. And so they take the eye of a cat. Yes.
0: The cat that's sitting on his lap. said, Well, we could take that eye and put that in your head. So they give him a cat's eye. Yes. <laughs> and he's delighted, except there is a problem. Yeah. <laughs> But when he's trying to go to sleep at night, the cat's eye will suddenly jump awake if there's Start any scratching of mice or anything, any sound at all. And then, of course, when he's trying to be watchful and wakeful when he's on duty, the cat's eye keeps falling asleep. <laughs> I love it this is the the proof of the physician's skill it is it's yeah. a bit like there are echoes of you know Lou has to show that he has great skill in order yeah. to enter Tara but the physicians have to show that they can do what they say they yeah. can and then they're let into the court to have I'm a look still at the trying
1: King. to b- b- get this wonderful beginning of a gothic yes. heroic image and yes. I keep getting stuck <laughs> But just imagine, once again, into the darkened hall and they're sitting in sorrow and pain is this weakened, wounded king. And from his arm, as they approach, there mm. slips this terrible beetle, this yeah. black beetle. What Yeah, which uh, uh, apparently is, is is an essence of beetle, isn't mm. it? It's so black, it's shiny yeah. black. Yeah. And in folklore terms, these beetles were supposed to eat dead flesh. Yes. Although they never did. It no, but it's of one
0: of those kind of, if you like... Kind of the opposite of a folk cure, a folk illness, that, you know, yeah. uh, if there were beetles around, it was because they were eating rotten yeah. flesh, so the yeah. rotting flesh. Yeah, so it's the idea of gangrene and rotting flesh and
1: presumably the smell of yeah. the ruin and the beetle slipping yeah. away from his arm. Mm. is a wonderful gothic, gothic image. And <laughs> they did. sort of say, hey, would you like that made better? Yes. <laughs> we can get you a new one. We'll get you a new one. And then, interestingly enough, Miak and... Uh, or, Orviak. A, Orviak. Uh I keep thinking it's supposed to be Arabic. Yes. They sort of decide to split the job. They say, mm-hmm. Well, who wants to be surgeon and who <laughs> wants to go out and get some herbs yeah. to, you know, who wants to get the medicine? Yeah. Now you'd expect Aravit to do this, but oddly enough, herbs. it's yeah. Miak who says he'll get the herbs. Yeah, and uh, Orviak. Orviak says he will be he'll the surgeon. He'll set the arm. Yeah. set the arm. Well, the trouble is that they can't replace the arms; so they have to go look for a new one. Yes, and so they wander around the court, apparently lining up everybody mm. and seeing what arm will fit.
0: Yes, is, isn't there one interpretation which says they've made a, a wooden
1: model? Oh, that's right. Of they the make arm. a wooden model yeah. of the arm, and then they measure it against everybody's arm. Yes, yeah. And uh, eventually, they find a poor swineherd. Yes. who has the exact same shape and size arm yes <laughs> and so all the nobles not not uh Nooda, no and not the swineherd no but they all go oh yeah we'll have that one for our king please exactly there's,
0: there's neither the swineherd nor the king have much say in this matter it and then they appear. bring back the arm there's yeah. no
1: mention of chopping it off no. <laughs> or uh, what happens to the swineherd yeah. the only thing i will say is uh, there may be that echo that swineherd's in a lot of literature, including the Irish, have mm. a sort of magical skill. Well, they definitely uh, tend to be shapeshifters.
0: I mean, there's the two great swineherd at, at the beginning of the Tyne who are, you know, having a battle, changing shapes over generations, changing themselves into various animals. And there does seem to be that idea that a swineherd can kind of look after himself in this. He'd have to in this case, yeah, in this kind of strange and mysterious way. Yeah. But it's not,
1: it's not explicit in our tale. No, I mean it's interesting in folklore, right? Oh, far as Russia, mm. you know, you you get this idea. If you meet us, or Germany, you meet a grim fairy tales for instance. If you meet a swineherd, he's almost certainly going to turn into a prince at yeah. some level. Yeah, you know, exactly. So I won't worry too much about our poor swineherd. Yeah, but anyway, Luarda gets his arm back, mm-hmm. and that's really the end of the opening piece. Yes, it's like a completely separate piece on its own. Mm-hmm. Because we move on to the terrible taxation of the Dodonan, yes. and the arrival of Lú at Tara, yes, which you'd expect. Now, the, it's um, there's it, a wonderful description in the text, which again is from the Richard Duffy Richard O'Duffy translation. Mm-hmm. And it goes: the, "Here is how this king was situated." The Foverer had imposed during his time a tax upon the Tour de Dolon, a very heavy rent tri- tribute, that is to say, a tax upon the kneading trough, a tax upon the quern, a tax upon the baking flags, also an ounce of gold for every nose of the Tour de Donlon upon the hill of Ushnok. <laughs> and they exhorted that tribute yearly, and the man who refused it, why, his nose was cut off from his head. <laughs> I do love that, that
0: kind of idea that you had to present... Gold that was equivalent to your nose. So if you didn't have the gold, you then you wouldn't your have your nose. <laughs> There's just something wonderfully wonderful image about it. Again,
1: that. it's a more recognisable sort of extorting tax rather yes. than the way in the ninth century one. They're all put to work.
0: Yes, or rather than uh, kind of going, okay, so this is the normal sort of food rent that you would pay to a lord. Hmm. Uh, it's just a particularly heavy yeah. one. This one has that kind of imposition of an yeah, invading force. Exactly, and something that is you know a beyond. Com- Honouring army. Yeah. yeah, and and
1: that's beyond what you would normally kind yeah. of accept as a taxation, yeah. you know. Uh, and interesting, didn't you remember that Ushnak here is is rather odd, isn't it? Yeah. It's not the Ushnak you'd expect it to be, not no. this wonderful centre of Ireland. Mm. The, they, uh, there's a little,
0: it's almost that glossorial voice in the text that said that the hill of Ushnak, which had been known as the hill of Balor. Or Baylor. is it? Well, Balor,
1: it's, it's, it's just
0: the way it's... It just has an A, a instead of, of an a. O, Yeah. But they say that it, you know, the text says it it was previously the hill of Balor, and I mean this well, is peculiar. Uisnech had always been associated with the Dagda. Exactly, yeah. I mean, in so many of the texts, the Dagda has his court at Uisnech because,
1: in many ways, it's it's conceived this, as the centre of Ireland. This um, sort of, you know, as it were, a symbolic centre. Yes,
0: exactly, and you know that's such a contrast from our text where Balor is, you know, on this peripheral island way up on the very fringes Mm. of, you know, what you might think of as
1: Ireland, whereas now it's right in the centre. And yet... Very, very clearly in this text, the 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 Fovara come from another country. Yeah, they come, come from, from outside, far well overseas. Seas. Yeah, yeah. In fact, they come from the mythical Loughlin, which yes. means the other place. Exactly, but is is usually often... associated with the Norse. Exactly, it's but often translated somewhere as we Viking don't or... want
0: to talk about. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah,
0: far away, nasty invaders and cold. Yeah, it's now become Loughlin. It's now become
1: cold. Exactly. Yeah, because yeah. I suppose of it's association with the Norse. Yes. Yeah. So Nenlu turns up. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, in the ninth century text, he is really the focus, yes. he's the sole focus of this. Yes, he, he has a retinue with him,
0: you know, but that's what you might, that's what part of what indicates his rank, is that he's travelling
1: with, you know, his servants, basically. Um, but they're just servants. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Here, he turns up with, oh my goodness, the fairy cavalcade.
0: <laughs> yes, and, and even though, you know, it, we would probably translate the Don't Irish now as, elves, yeah. as, as uh, you know, the, the she-host or something she like host. that. she he turns up. But it's actually translated in this yeah. bio Duffy as the fairy cavalcade. <laughs> and that's that's just such a fun term, and it does really kind of reflect the way that they're described and depicted, you know. Again, they're mm-hmm. also called the clan of Magalan. They are, yes. And the, the very much this sense of, you know, that you have the Tua de Donnan as the people of Ireland, but then there's also the fairy folk, mm-hmm. you know, that they are separate
1: Who are peoples. another race that live within Ireland, mm. who don't think small, they're no. equal stature, yes. they are warriors. If you think back to our corpse carrying for mm. beginners, mm. which again is a story of approximately the same... It, I think, near as 9th century, yeah. yeah. That, that's near as much earlier. Yeah. But you've still got the, that's what I meant, that's the original Mojtaro mm. But even there you've, oddly enough, Gone. got this feeling of two races.
0: Yes, yeah. But this, this is more almost like, you know, the people and the way that we might now think of the Shee folk, you know. Mm. They're, they're Tolkien's elves. You know, um, they they kind of not literally. Well, no, but you know, in, in the sense <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. of a people who are somewhat mysterious, who kind of emerge from yeah. the mists and.
1: That's right. You, know, you would recognise them today, yeah. uh, in modern literature mm. as similar to the type of way that Tolkien treats the elves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, now the clan Manan, uh, they have some interesting names, don't they? Well, they do, and again, this is
0: very much more alike. You know the 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 late, <clears throat> later ideas of you know fairy folk or whatever, and um, because they're all this the scots clay gal. That's the son
1: of Manannan. Yeah, the son that, of Man-A-N. that's <laughs> his name. This great warrior, son of Manannan, and his name means <laughs> the clear bright flower. Uh, <laughs> and then there's Ravak
0: Shladin, which seems to be a sort of he's a rod. Of magic wand, oh, like little, little magic wand, little magic wand. So we've got the bright clear flower yeah, and the magic, magic wand, and then and we Gleagal have must be bright and clear again. Glegall is bright Gleagal, clear Gleagal, again, yeah. And the garv bit means he's rough, though. So, so he's, he's a bit like the bright and clear, but he's also a little bit rough. A bit of rough,
1: yeah, a little yeah. bit yeah. rough. <laughs> <laughs> then uh, there's a few more. Yeah, there's yeah. uh, Gothner the Gwestner gormhula oh, oh goodness me! <laughs> sorry about the pronunciation. <laughs> Who is
0: the blue-eyed little spear? The little
1: blue-eyed spear? Yeah. Okay, and then there's this old character. Yeah,
0: Shinna Shinderg, who, although in some contexts it's difficult to know whether Shin is Sheen or Shinna or what it is, in this context I think he is the old and the old red you know he's the oldest of the old red the oldest of the old red yeah. and the little blue spear little blue-eyed spear. blue-eyed spear yeah, yeah. then Do- you've got Dovnal Dunruid. Dovnal Dunrood, yes uh the Dovnal bit again it's it's quite a common personal name mm-hmm. and even a family name and uh, the the best I can come up with is this sort of sense of the great earth Dovnal um but the Dovnal- then there's
1: another colour more yeah, coloured.
0: Dun, Dun Ruids. You've got Dun, which is the colour for kind of earth coloured, mm. what we might now call brown. And Ruids, mm. of course, is that. The red russet, russet earth.
1: Yeah, so russet, yeah. So, Daphne of the russet earth. Yes. Yeah. And the blue eyed spear. Yeah. And, uh, and the bright clear, clear blossom And yeah. Yeah, and the magic little magic wand. Yeah. Oh, there's one more, <clears throat> yeah. isn't there?
0: So Oid is not Ethel, then at the end. Oh, he's the last one. Yes. Yeah. So he's uh, flame again, as Oid mm-hmm. is. The Ethel, I'm not so sure what that what that would be. Um, it could be about.
1: Ethel the pirate's daughter.
0: Um, <laughs> oh, uh, son of Ethel. I, no, it's not it's not your Saxon Ethel. I don't no. I don't of think it isn't no. <laughs> I just couldn't resist yeah. it. But it, it, it could be You the son of Ethel. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. That's good. I think that's probably as much sense as we're gonna get out of it. Sorry with you. about that. <laughs> but that's you know, that's what these are the fairy cavalcade. Yeah. You know, this glittering
1: host so it's interesting because the names are quite a different order from some of the ones we've looked at before exactly definitely this essence of if they're sheer Mm. they must have she names yeah sheer names you know and then of course this time we get a load of he's got all this magical equipment oh yeah which he certainly doesn't have in the early text yeah this is king of bling stuff oh absolutely and he's riding of course the very famous horse envar which i always thought was Went mum one mane, but you tell me it means one head. <laughs> the one-headed horse. Exactly. That. That's how I like to think of her. <laughs> Again, it's
0: it's just that the bar bit there. It just means the top. So sometimes um, it can mean the head. Sometimes it can mean the, the top of the head. It could mean the top of the wave, the the, the, the in, white horses of the waves. I, yeah, I think it's 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 certainly evocative of that, you know. But I still like the idea of of pointing out that this yeah. is a one-headed horse. I mean, this
1: this wonderful horse that turns mm. up in several stories. Yeah. This is Malinan's famous horse mm. who carries Cormac to the uh, to the Isle of Apples, mm. and uh, he, he, he she it's she here. Mm. Uh, it's, it's she's supposed to be swift as the bleak cold wind of spring mm. and sea and land were equal to her and no rider was ever killed off her back yeah but I love that yeah. swift as the bleak cold wind of spring it's lovely yeah yeah, yeah. and then of course he's also wearing Malinan's armour mm. which is not named but it says that if he's wearing this he can't be wounded yes and a breastplate mm-hmm. which again weapons take no effect on them mm. and then this wonderful helmet called helmet yes <laughs> We've had
0: chariots called chariots before. And now we have a helmet called helmet. He had
1: a magical <laughs> helmet
0: known as Helmet, helmet. <laughs> <laughs> Cathbar. Cathbar, yeah. yeah. Again, there's that word bar, which is just the, the top, and the cath is battle, so it's kind of battlehead, you know. And
1: interesting, these, its magic powers were entirely cosmetic. Mm. It had a very beautiful precious stone at the front, mm. and uh, uh, on it, and two of them, rather, at the mm. front, and it met, made him radiate mm. wonderful beauty, mm. and he could be seen for miles. <laughs> Yeah, big shiny head on him. It made his face and forehead as brilliant as the sun on a dry summer's day. Yeah, and dry summer's day is quite important. Absolutely shows. Yes, <laughs> yes. That means it was really unusual. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, there his sword. Mm. His Fregerhock. Yeah, which is the the answerer or the responder. Yeah, the and hunk. no one yeah. was uh, no one that was ever wounded with it would come away alive.
0: Yeah. Now there's there's a resonance in the description with the sword that came with the of the and in their four treasures mm-hmm. you know it's it's got a similar kind of and certainly that one became sense. known as Lou's sword exactly it? yeah and it, uh, in the, the answer yeah. yeah you said that yeah yeah and in in the um, early modern Irish cast for example um it the Lou is the one who has the sword and knew that has the spear mm-hmm. you know it's the other way around in the ninth century text there's all this uncertainty about who has which and where they came I from I don't think
1: it matters because I the treasures so. are the treasures yeah yeah and they get assigned to who whoever happens to be the hero.
0: Exactly, exactly. So I think that there
1: is a, a memory or an echo of that here. Yeah, Lewin's it says sword. also it was never unsheathed, mm. but would make its opponent weak. Yes. So just by unsheathing, yeah. and of course you have this echo of Excalibur, yeah. and just yeah. about every other magic sword. Exactly. There's definitely, yeah. you know, the, the the sheath of Excalibur mm. was mm. so important. So. Mm.
0: And uh, the description in the ninth or the you know ninth and Middle Irish descriptions of the treasures say you know no one could resist it once it had been drawn from its battle scabbard. Mm-hmm. You know, so it is. It's very much relevant to that.
1: Now, um there's no
0: testing of Lou here. No.
1: Once he turns up, he's following hard on his heels come the uh, Favreau. Yes, yeah. Now, it's about uh, how many of them, a whole load of them turn up, but mm. they're all just an embassy there's of around. Not,
0: there's nine of nine, isn't there? Nine nines, or is that later? That's right, nine yeah. nines. Yeah. And again, we've, we've commented before that we think that the, the nine might be a reference to a sort of a battle group.
1: So nine platoons, not, yeah. not battle group battalions. Yeah, nine... yeah, nine battalions. Yeah, turned up. Yeah. And, of course, um, the... Oh, they have some interesting names, yes. too. Well,
0: we've got Eina, a- and then we have Etheith, or Aeth, uh Then we have Coron, and finally Cumbar. And these last two are particularly curious, yes. I think, because Coron, it's it's a Latin loan word, but it means crown, and it can be the crown of your head. Yeah. And then the Cumbar is a torso. Okay. So you've almost got these, you know... I'm reminded of some of the the later folk tales of, you know, the trunk without head, you know, that you've got sort of a head on its own. A head without the trunk. Yeah. It's
1: almost like, oh, my image, I'm afraid. I immediately started to think uh, that moment in uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail with all the (laughs) knights... Yes. Three-headed knights. And the yes. yes. Oh, take those images out of my head. These are meant to be fovera. Yeah. And meant to be serious. <laughs> but certainly the Dodonan think they're serious. Yeah, yeah. And
0: they quake in their boots. Well, they pay them homage. You know, they all have to sort of stand to attention when the fovera come in. Now, there's different readings on this that Lou didn't like it
1: mm-hmm.
0: Um O'Duffy's kind of commentary you know when he gives a synopsis he says oh Lou d- didn't like that the Dadanan should be paying tribute to these foreigners mm-hmm. but I read the incident as well it's sort of like Lou says why do you pay them respect when you don't pay that respect
1: to it's me. It's interesting that because what he actually says to them once the well, father yeah left the room he goes why did you stand up before yonder grim and ill-looking band and not arise before us yeah we're obliged to do that replied the king of ireland for if there were a child of us but a month old in a sitting posture before them they would not deem it cause too little for slaying us yeah <laughs> i swear said lou that a desire to kill them has come upon me uh, that is a thing that would result badly for us, interposed <laughs> the King of Ireland, for through that action we would receive our death and our destruction. Well, they seem pretty clear about not wanting to fight back. Well, yeah. You know, again, there's this d- depiction of the
0: King of Nuada as being sort of weak. Or pragmatic. Well, yeah. You know, again, it's it's you can see it from either side, you know, that he's either kind of pragmatic, saying, you know, we have to do this, otherwise we'll all die. But there's this kind of implication. If Lou is being held up as this kind of saviour hero, then it's sort of contrasting the king as being this kind mm. of, you know, who's accepted the uh, the foreign invaders as overlords, you know. And um, but even though the king says, you know, oh well, they'll all kill us if we try anything, Lou
1: just kind of goes right, stuff that exactly. I'm going to and interestingly anyway. enough, he immediately kills. I mean, presumably they'd left the room and he was talking. Yeah. But he goes they're still in the camp. Exactly. They're still they are still no guests. Yes. They're still under the hospitality of Exactly, of, of the, the King of the, Ireland. Uh, ...the Donen. Yeah. And he just goes out and kills eight times nine of them, yeah. leaving nine, which is Yes. Good mass. <laughs> um, but he just kills them immediately. Yeah. And sends the last night back with messages to the Favre. So he yeah. just doesn't take any yeah, you know, he just doesn't and, take any nonsense. And this is a complete breach of yeah. hospitality and of the rules of war it sounds as though it's this wonderful heroic action mm-hmm. but in fact that would never never have happened no it couldn't you in know in the ninth century text it would have been seen as a terrible breach oh
0: yeah that and not you know again <clears> the fa are not seen as that as inhospitable in that fashion Although they know.
1: overdo the hospitality.
0: yeah but uh, but it's still in terms of of you but know you don't kill out. you don't just we, straightforwardly
1: slaughter your guests and you don't slaughter emissaries god no absolutely it's, it's it's absolutely it's just so wrong taboo yeah it just is really against the rules yeah yeah um, you know it's a bit like even later when you have the story in Scotland of mm. the massacre of Glencoe which mm. is remembered to this day mm. the reason for it is not that the Scottish clans killed each other mm. but that they were in the same room and they had eaten together oh, and once yes. they'd eaten together yeah they you don't kill someone you've eaten with no and emissaries yeah. however from an enemy yeah. would be treated in the same way oh absolutely yeah. I only mention that because it's interesting mm. the fact that Glencoe is still seen as a haunted place mm. Mm. Yeah, there were massacres all over the place yeah. they were always killing each other as, yeah. as, as they did but yeah. it was done in a time of hospitality, exactly. it was done after a meal. Really yeah, we don't do that. Exactly. That's it. It makes it even more grievous. Just, just unthinkable. Really. Yeah. So that, I'd say we we would see this as yeah. being exactly that. Exactly. Yeah. And really, this starts the whole situation going. Mm. Now, um, they the last nine go back to the uh, Favara rather. Why do I keep saying it? It's because it's, um, it's written as Fomorian, yeah. which is always puts me off. But. Um, He goes back and Ketlin, the wife of Balor, Mm. immediately recognises who this new saviour is. Yes, And she says, that person is a daughter's son of yours and mine, and it is a sign and an omen to us that when that person would come to Ireland, never again will we have power here. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. It's one of the only times you meet Balor, really. Yes, yes, and and very much
0: kind of as a king in Lachlan, you know, not as someone who's actually fighting in Ireland. Um, but you do have this thing with the figure of Kathlin who is supposed to be Balor's wife, Balor's um, queen. supposed
1: to give name to Enniskillen.
0: Exactly, yeah. in Island. Yeah, we've talked about this before. But there are people who think that it's a kind of a linguistic um mistaking because Lou describes himself as Mock Keen Mock ethlin, mm-hmm. that, that Mock has become mock Kethlin. Mm-hmm. And so there's this idea that there's a figure called Kethlin who is somehow related to Balor, And I think you have sympathy with this, don't you? Yeah, and particularly in in this little incident, which is the only appearance of Kethlyn, I think, in this tale. She's... And she doesn't turn up a lot anyway. No, no, absolutely not. She, she's quite sort of uh, evasive. Um, but if you kind of go back and go, OK, so the Kethlyn is taking the place of Ethlu, who's actually mm-hmm. Lou's mother, then you have Lou's mother recognising her son from his description And kind of almost giving that prophecy, you know, that now that he's come to Ireland, Balor's power is
1: at an end. Yeah, that fits. Yeah. Fits very well. And it rather matches the old story of Bresh Yes. And his mother and father.
0: It as well. does, exactly, yeah. And about finding your father and discovering who you are and, you know, all those things. So
1: then Bresh anyway, bresh plans an attack on Dodona. Now it's quite clear here, Bresh is not the disgraced son no. as he is in the ninth century. Text, no, no, no. When he goes back to his father in Deck, mm. now he becomes the, a son of Balor. He's now a son of Balor, yeah. But um he when he goes back to Indaic before, he's disgraced because his mm. father said, Well, if you've lost your if you've lost your kingship through injustice, mm. you can't get it back by force. Exactly. But uh, now he's the battle captain, yeah. and he is the one that Lou is really fighting. Yes. He's not fighting Balor, no. he's fighting Bresh. Mm. And uh, he plans an attack on the Dadanan. The mm. And uh, he says, I and seven valiant and immense battalions of the horsemen of the, of the Fovera will go to Ireland and will give battle to the Eldalock, and I will cut off his head and I will bring it back to you upon the plains of Lochlann." Mm-hmm. And uh, the father go, well, that would be a fitting thing to do. Yep, that would be nice. Yeah, if we're ready. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So then
0: we have these two characters who assemble Brescia's ships for him.
1: And they're called Lewis Linock and Lewis Leverham. It's interesting that the names of the people who assemble the hosts are actually remembered. Yes, yeah, well, they're they're given names. names.
0: You know, now they both have this element Lewis at the beginning, which in some ways it could imply swiftness, Mm -hmm. as in Lewis But it could also mean ashes, you know, so it could also be, you know, that they're dusty and and kind of grubby and and you know just remains like Lina could be sort of full of ashes you could see it that way and the luach leverham the leverham bit means I recognize that name. yeah it what it means is kind of tall and crooked and uh, we have, of course, the character of Levercombe, who's kind of the, the nurse or foster Deirdre. mother of
1: Deirdre. Yeah. yeah. Not a nice character. but no. A of a sort of witch-like character. Yeah,
0: and all the descriptions of her are how she's ugly and mean and nasty and, you know... So
1: is this a sort of reference to that, that these are the nasty old yeah, fovera? I, yeah. So their ships are, you know, this is almost like this gothic ghost ship. Exactly, image. yeah. That I think it is tending towards this this kind of monstrousness. You and know. yet, this is the way they're described. Yeah. And it doesn't fit that. Yeah. Then their ships and their swift box were pushed out from the harbour and they filled them with pitch, frankincense and myrrh <laughs> and they hoisted their sliding and variegated sails and they made a united and eager stroke from the harbour and shoreport out upon that land that is not ploughed the expansive sea the wonderful and cheerless abyss and the ridge mounds of the flood over the high humid and very treacherous mountains of the truly deep ocean and they ceased not from that sailing course until they made port and harbour at Istara. And they let free their hosts upon West Connacht, and they entirely devastated it. Mm. It's brilliant,
0: isn't it? Great it, description. And I think it's partly that once the, the uh, storyteller gets into describing the sea. I think it's partly that, you know, it's this sort of wondrous sight of ships going it's across the sea. It's a brilliant piece
1: of storytelling. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. The, you know, the the land that is not ploughed, yeah. the cheerless abyss and yes. the ridge mounds of the flood. Well, yeah. I must remember that as yeah, a description yeah. for waves. Yeah, yeah. The ridge mounds of the flood yeah. and that ploughing, the ploughed yes. field. Yes. I mean, I know this is a you know, mm. regularly used... Um, uh, description yeah. or image. This yeah. is the ploughing of the sea because yeah. of the shapes of the, that the yeah. sea makes, but it's. Beautifully put together on it. Yeah, it is. And yet they start off. Why frankincense and myrrh? I don't know. And why have they mistaken tar for gold? I'm not sure about that one either.
0: (laughs) You know, this pitch and. I don't know. Maybe it's just a kind of exoticism, you know, that they're going on a long journey, they've come Mm. from far away, so they have these strange substances with them.
1: And yet they're writing about a fleet that's come to devastate Colour. Yes. These are the enemy. Mm. And they're writing and giving them this glorious description as if they were the. Heroes arriving. Mm, mm. I <laughs> forgot. Well, like I, I, I think it's partly because
0: just that image of the ships on a journey through the sea is so wondrous that the storyteller just has to give
1: it all this. Well, know? that's why I wanted you to mention those. Yeah. Uh, the the, the shipbuilders. Yeah, yeah. Who seem to have some sort of uh, Pirates of the Caribbean good yeah, ship yeah. quality to them. So yeah. <laughs> I don't know what's what's uh, going on yeah <laughs> it's really flowery yeah. but then you know this is the time you were telling me of mm. the classical yeah, this is bardic where, poetry exactly yeah
0: we're we're coming into the time of classical bardic verse which is you know flowery in the extreme you know but there there's a lot of kind of ambivalent ambivalent feeling within this story because it seems to have these passages of that you know sort of wonderful purple prose and poetry mm-hmm. but then it also kind of makes fun the poets yeah, at times and doesn't it doesn't it. really trust
1: the use of archaic language or you know it's there's a so lot there is an ambivalence oh definitely mind yeah. you we come to now i this is the bit that oh. i always quote because i love this description yes. of bala yeah Cause he says, "Oh God, give battle to the Adonis, cut off his head," and then he tells him to do something really odd. He mm. goes, "Make fast the uh, that island which is called Era to your ships and your good barks, and let the deep surrounding water take its place." and Put the island in the north of Lochland yeah. and not one of the tour de Donald shall ever follow it there. Yes. So this image well, I mean they're all on the island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's going, take the island, yeah. tow it north exactly. to where it's really cold. Yes,
0: yeah. Let's <laughs> see how they like that. Now uh, we yeah. used to when we used to grumble about the state of things in Ireland, we used to say that we should tow it south. Yeah. So that it would be a little bit nicer. But this is obviously, you
1: know, meant to have the opposite effect. Well it's interesting because it somehow paints Balor mm. almost as a frost giant. Yeah. Yeah. And this tale is told after the time of the coming of the Norse. Yes, and it's as, almost as though, okay, let's take this island. You know, the, the mm. terrible thing that could happen—it yeah. could be dragged where those horrible characters come, the ice giants out yeah. there. So Balor must be one of those. So it sort of makes Balor into a frost giant, yes. which he has that element about him, exactly. even in the earlier tale. Yeah, yeah. But here, you've almost got—it makes sense mm. because it's after the coming of the Norse. Yes, uh, I don't know. I just love the idea mm. of them. They're, how can you get if you think about it? All this is happening on Ireland, and he's going tow the island up there so Mm. that the people who are on it will never find it. Yes, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) will never follow it. Yes, yeah. So they're going to fall off along the
0: way (laughs) if you pull it really hard. Then they'll (laughs) They'll fall fall into into the the sea sea. and they'll
1: never find it again. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) no, there's probably a few people who like to do that to Ireland. It's on so everyone falls off. Ah! Yep. <laughs> no, it's just such a wonderful image. It's great. Uh, if we move on to the next section, mm. uh, at this point, Lou decides that it's about time to actually do something sensible. Huh. And he requests aid from Nuada. Yes. He yes. says, Well, okay, we've got, got, get rid got of whether this. you like it or not, mm. battle is now happening. Yes. So he takes his horse, mm. man, you know, the horse one head, the one-headed horse. Bar. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, at the junction of the day or night, for some reason, yeah, it's mentioned specifically. Mm. He goes off to Noorda and tells him that the foreigners have come ashore, so that they, they and they plundered the both of Bodh-Durag, Yeah, they plundered the west, mm. and he said, um, right. I really like some help from you, mm. and uh, Nuala says, "Well, I'm not going to help you yeah. because uh, I'm not going to avenge a deed that's not been done to me." Which that seems really, really odd. Oh, it's it's completely out of character from the point of view
0: of any Irish king, good or bad. You know, they still have responsibility for what's done to their people. He's supposed
1: to be at this point, in terms of this story, he's mm. the king of Ireland. Yes, uh, yeah, at Tara. Mm. And um, the West has been devastated. Yeah. He says, well, it's not my problem. Yeah, and that's just... And that's not the Luda we know no, our, at all. No, it's, and
0: it's not even... I can't think of another king who would have had that mm. approach in any story. Yeah. You did
1: say to me that it may have a sort of echo of Clontarf about it.
0: I think so. I think there is a, a kind of a... A sense of not just the Battle of Clontarf but also the later kind of so the so-called Norman invasions
1: whereby yeah yeah I mean I should have said post Clontarf yeah
0: exactly yeah where you had um, an Irish king who was seen as being kind of weak and grasping who essentially invites the foreigners in um, to, to to help him or to support his claim, and thereby the sovereignty of Ireland is lost. or mm, well threatened at least. So, yes, but by, by the time you're at the, the recording of this <clears throat> tale, so by the time you're in the 13th or 14th century, that's already kind of passed into a folk history, mm-hmm. you know, that this is how we lost sovereignty and this is how the foreigners came in and started taking over the land and introducing their ways and so on you know so there, there is almost an echo of that that you know you have a king who is you know kneeling before these foreigners and the hero who says come on we have to fight them and get rid of them and he goes oh no 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 i'm not going to do
1: that you know mm-hmm, mm. so it's interesting they yeah. knew should be portrayed in this way exactly yeah very unfavorably
0: end of part one to continue the conversation Listen to part two.